This episode is sponsored by Panacea Financial, the national bank for doctors by doctors. Join the growing number of doctors nationwide that expect more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today for information on their student loan, refinance loans, and to learn about their Refer-A-Friend program. That's PanaceaFinancial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Paul, this is take number 43. Uh, <laughs> We're doing great. <laughs> still don't know how to start the show. Uh, tonight, we are going to be talking about inpatient hypertension with a wonderful guest, Dr. Noble Malik. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how is life? I, you know, it's it's stable. Thank you for asking. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm sure overworked as always. Well, Paul, I wanted to remind you and the audience that this episode, most of our episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And that is, of course, free. Paul, before you tell them about our co-hosts and introduce them, can you remind people, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. As a gentle reminder to our audience, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, as you mentioned, Matt, we have two new co-hosts with us. We're very excited to have them. They'll be representing us um, in things inpatient sort of moving forward. So I'm pleased to introduce Meredith Trubit and Moni Amin. And hopefully I pronounced that okay. Was that all right, Moni? Perfect. Okay, excellent. Um, cool. I think I'm going to let them tell us a little bit more about themselves. Why don't we start with Moni first? Moni, so excited to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about who we're talking to. Yeah, I'm Moni. Um, I can't really tell you where I'm from because I've moved a ton growing up, and I feel like that's better informed who I am as a human in relation to the rest of the humans that were around. Um, <laughs> that's really it, you know? And uh, any fun facts that you wanted to tell them about yourself? Or do, are we just going to slow reveal all that? Uh, you are giving a pick of the week later, so they, they can really look forward I to I think that. we're going we're gonna to let you marinate in that <laughs> pick of the week, and then you'll find out more. Yeah, we Paul and I have only scratched the surface audience, but uh, I'm really scared of what we found so far, and it's only been a couple of hours. No, uh, I'm deeply excited. This is going to be excellent. <laughs> All right, and and Dr. Meredith Trubit, her partner in crime, uh, tell us about yourself. So I'm Meredith. I am born and raised in Texas, and then kind of was had a nomadic existence through life thereafter, but have now since then settled down in Atlanta, 1.8 miles from Moni. Uh, <laughs> we're getting creepy right off the bat. <laughs> well, I'm sure the audience can't wait to get to know you more, as I, I think Paul and I feel the same way. But let's tell them more about our guest. We we have a fantastic conversation for you tonight with Dr. Noble Malik, who is an assistant professor in the Emory Division of Hospital Medicine. He's a clinician educator at Emory Midtown and serves as associate program director for the J. Willis Hurst Internal Medicine Residency Program at Emory University in Atlanta. He is also a faculty small group advisor for the Emory School of Medicine. 
He is a proud father of two girls, and today he teaches us when, and just as importantly, when not to treat hypertension in the inpatient setting, as well as appropriate medication choices and when it is needed. So Meredith or Moni, before we move on, is there a pun that anyone has prepared at this point? I feel like there could be a lot of them. Um, not really any good ones. Well, that's never, never stopped us. That's yeah. never stopped us. And uh, yeah, don't don't force Paul to make one, which he has recently revealed to us that Paul is filled with puns. He just doesn't like to say them. I'm just going to say it. There's no such thing as a good pun. So. <laughs> All right. We could we could take that. We'll, we'll move on to the show. <laughs> Noble, you gave us a great one liner in the warm ups, but I got to ask you, repeat it for the audience. Please give them a one liner about yourself so they can get to know you like we have been for the last like 15, 20 minutes offline here. Sure. Uh, I'm a PGY 21 who feels a lot older than a stated age, <laughs> an academic hospitalist and clinician educator, and a father of two young girls who is not above bribing his children and his learners with food and candy to uh, buy their affection because their love is on sale and I want it. Can you, what's a good bribe these days for students? I feel like everyone's carb conscious. I don't know what to bring in. So what, what, sh- what should I bring in? Well, in Catholic South, I say carbs is still king. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it goes a long way here. Yes. Okay. That's good. That's good to know. That's good to know. Although one day I did bring uh, like, um, you know, not just regular bagels. I went like second level and got like, you know, egg and cheese bagels and sausage egg and cheese bagels. And that was a big hit. Yes. Texas had breakfast tacos and they were very affordable. You could get like two or three dozen and bring them in and you'd be a hero. I, I miss those times. Philadelphia does not have breakfast tacos, at least not that I'm aware of. Or, or if they do, they're probably pretty grim, I would imagine. <laughs> Paul, did you want to ask anything? Um, sure. I'm I'm always interested in books that people are reading. I can't promise that I'll then read them after they make the recommendation, but I always at least like to hear if there's any book that you read recently that was especially meaningful to you. It doesn't have to be medical, but just something that you enjoyed recently. Um, yeah, I don't tend to read medical books, but the I just finished a book which I think speaks a lot to my own interests. It's called The Apollo Murders. It uh, takes place on the moon in space. I really love like NASA and things related to the moon. It's kind of an espionage slash mystery, which also things that I read about. It's written by Chris Hadfield, who was an, actually an astronaut who uh, went to the space station. Uh, I think if you were interested in, in NASA, it's legit. And I think I really, I really enjoyed it. I was saying that has not been recommended before. Thank you. Yeah. Noble, what's the best advice that you've ever gotten when you were a learner or have gotten recently, even though you're, you know, PGY-21? <laughs> I think when I was a student, and this is you know a true story, I didn't uh, didn't know what to do with my life, and somewhat of a random attending who I kind of went to for advice because I didn't know who to go to advice to, and he encouraged me to look at different places and expand my horizons. I never thought about going to Seattle for training, which is where I went uh, from growing up in the South, and um, he. He opened my mind to say, you know, really to get out of your comfort zones and to explore. And honestly, he changed the trajectory of my life by going to to Seattle for my training. So you just like took the leap and you're just like, I'm getting out of here and I'm just going going to Seattle. And- when he suggested it, I was like, I mean, I knew he didn't know me. I'm like, sure, he doesn't know me. That's why he gave me that advice. Because if he knew me, he knew I would not leave my city that I'm in because, you know, I was there for college and medical school. So he gave me great advice and and it turned out well for me. What is your favorite failure and like, what did you learn from it? 
Well, I, I do spend a lot of time with students and residents. And so I spend a lot of time thinking of myself as um, a teacher. And one of the things that I really hope and try to pride myself in is to create a safe learning environment. And so my biggest failure was with a time when I did not do that. And I think uh, related to a learner who was involved with a patient that was challenging and as a result of that was not able to really maximize her learning experience. And I'm grateful to the evaluation. Even though I've been doing this for a long time, I always fear when you get your feedback back (laughs) from evaluations, I'm always like, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? This one, it hurt me uh, to read because I did feel like I failed that experience. And it's one of the things that I, in my expectations, I say straight up. And when I meet any team, like my goal and my job is to create an environment that will be safe for you to learn. And, and I hope to do that. That's really good. I think like in an era where we're trying to like support residents um, and learners way more, that's really an authentic comment. Yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly what the situation here, if it was an aggressive patient or not, but I think we probably can become desensitized to a lot of the stuff we see in the hospital and uh, just realizing that a lot of this can be traumatic for learners is something that probably everyone could could re- rethink that or just kind of try to remember what it was like back then. Well, I think we need some picks of the week before we go on to the main topic here. And you know, Meredith and Moni, this is your your first time on the show. So we'll Paul and I will abstain from picks of the week, but I will ask you, uh, we'll start with Moni. Can you give us your pick of the week? Yeah. Uh, so I know you guys usually go for obscure, and this one's not going to be at all obscure for most people. Um, <laughs> although, I mean, although, as a reminder, Matt picked out a jump rope and his wife as two separate picks of the week. So you're you're not we're not always shooting the moon. So, here. I mean, his wife's fantastic, but I'm just saying. I think it got a little overshadowed by another uh, woman with a big voice putting out a song on the same day. But uh, Kelly Clarkson put out her second Christmas album a couple weeks ago, and I have to say, it is a divorce Christmas album, and it is phenomenal. Uh, never sounded better. And there's like a full orchestra, like her record company clearly gave her a budget and it's phenomenal. So Kelly Clarkson's when Christmas comes around her second Christmas album, do yourself a favor, listen to it right now, like after this episode. (laughs) And for the record, Moni has made, I think every day since it's come out has made an effort to bring it up in casual conversation with anyone she talks to (laughs) as I should. It is incredible. (laughs) <laughs> so it's a it's a Christmas album centered around divorce. Yes. Okay, kind of like a jagged little pill. It's like it's that good. It's like Alanis Morissette uh, um, level. So I won't say it's going <laughs> to change music. the face of like female pop the way Jagged Little Pill did because I'm not that delusional about the stage of Kelly's career that she's in. But I'm just saying, like, it's an interesting concept. And after her excellent first Christmas album, that she had to think of something that was different. And she did. And there's like some good like covers of classics. But I mean, there's some pretty uh, pointed language at her ex. And it's fantastic. Okay. Noble, are you still with us? Please (laughs) stick with us on the recording. I swear. Love Kelly Clarkson. (laughs) Uh, That's that's okay. We will accept pandering. That's fine. Uh, Meredith, how about you? Pick of the week. Um. Mine's not as hilarious, but I like it. I don't know what's funny about this pick. (laughs) 
it's not as funny, but Moni actually recommended the podcast to me. So if anyone listens to Armchair Expert, I guess about a year ago now, they came out with um, Kristen Bell and uh, Monica Pama did And We Are Supported By. And it's like a 10 episode series kind of talking about feminism and women in the world and kind of the different ways like we should be reframing like the conversation of what you do at work or what you do at home. And there's like a lot of references to like imposter syndrome. So kind of like medicine adjacent, but it's been very inspirational, like have been listening to it like on the way to work and things like that. So highly recommend. Very good. Abby Wong Beck episode is yeah, our, probably our favorite. Hey, Curbsiders. It's no surprise to anybody that many people are thinking of career changes right now because it's been a tough two years. And when you go through something like this, it really causes you to question things and maybe think about things in a different way. So have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Our sponsor today is locumstory.com. And I want you to know that if you're feeling burned out, you think you need a change of pace, or you're just looking for a way to supplement your income, you can get answers to questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how locums might fit into your life at locumstory.com. They use real doctors to give you real answers. And when you're thinking about locum tenens, you can do this close to home, in another state, or even in another country. So maybe travel is something that you had in mind. This might be a way to do that. You can work when you want, where you want, and how much you want. About one-third of locums physicians work locums full-time. But maybe you're not ready to quit your full-time job yet, but you just want to supplement your income and keep your permanent position. You can use weekends or vacations and turn those into a substantial income source because, as I mentioned, locums physicians make 33% more on average. So where can you start? Visit locumstory.com to peruse their trends by specialty tool, a list of the top 10 agencies, endless FAQs, and a quiz to help you determine if locums is a fit for your current situation. Again, visit locumstory.com to see if a locum tenens assignment is right for you. We are so excited to bring you a new Curbsiders series on teaching in medicine, The Curbsiders Teach. I'm a regular Curbsiders producer, Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya, your co-host for The Curbsiders Teach, the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We cover topics like bedside teaching, feedback, learner mental health, and know you'll find valuable skills in this podcast series. So let's unlock your potential to be a great medical educator. Join in to hear our expert interviews, bringing you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. Subscribe to The Curbsiders Teach wherever you get your podcasts. Moni, before we get to a case from Cashlack, uh, you want to start us off here? Yeah. Uh, so, Noble, just so that we all kind of start on the same footing, kind of talk us through hypertension, hypertensive urgency, hypertensive emergency. Like, is hypertensive urgency a thing? Kind of talk us through the definitions of those things. Sure. I mean, it's uh, something that we think about a lot and it comes up so often. Just as a basics, you know, hypertension, meaning elevated blood pressure, there are different societies that have different cutoffs. I think most recently people think about 130 over 80 for most patients. Some will say 140 over 90. So when we think about blood pressure, which, which of course is very common and as everyone knows, both in and out of the hospital. But I think it's really important, as you mentioned, hypertensive emergency and hypertensive urgency. Once again, words that we think about a lot, that we've been taught a lot. 
I think most people would think about the definition of urgency and emergency and have the blood pressure of 180 over 120 in their mind as the blood pressure they think about. And the differences are related to the effects or end organ damage related to blood pressure effects. So theoretically, hypertensive urgency is blood pressures over 180 over 120 without evidence of end organ damage. And hypertensive emergency is blood pressures over 180 over 120 with signs of end organ damage. But as you hinted, there's been a lot of conversations about whether or not hypertensive urgency as a phrase, as a concept, is problematic because it really means you should do something if something is urgent. Otherwise, I've seen people write down hypertensive crisis as also is another phrase that people will write down. And honestly, I've done it myself. And it's hard to say that you have a crisis and then not act upon a crisis. And so as a result, people tend to treat urgency and emergency very similarly. So moving, I guess, into our first case at Cashlack, we have Mr. Nomo Hydral, who's a 56-year-old male. He has past medical history of diabetes, alcohol use disorder, and he was initially admitted to the hospital with sepsis from community-acquired pneumonia. And you're picking up service um, on hospital day three, and you're reviewing his overnight vitals, and his vital signs are a Tmax of 37. Heart rates have kind of been in the 80s. Blood pressures have been ranging between like systolics of 151, 169, and diastolics of 94 over 102. Respirations, SpO2 are all fine. And thinking about this case, how would you classify this patient's hypertension based on the definitions you just gave us and why? Yeah, I think one of the first things I would say is even the question about classifying is hypertension. So Mr. Nomo doesn't have a previous diagnosis of hypertension according to your case. So really what he has is elevated blood pressure. And um, as you may remember from an, really, or an earlier curbside episodes from this winter talking about hypertension, the definition of hypertension is actually really come up somewhat not difficult to do, but it requires usually an outpatient measurement of blood pressure on multiple occasions in a way that is standardized and, and oftentimes probably very difficult to do in the ambulatory care setting, I would imagine, and pretty much impossible to do in the weird reality that we live in when people are in the hospital. It just really is a, just a different universe in the hospital. And so really what I would say is that he has elevated blood pressure. And we really generally cannot make a diagnosis of hypertension if you go by strict definitions of patients in the hospital. Although obviously, many, since it's such a prevalent condition, we just assume that people have hypertension when they show up with elevated blood pressures. And so I would say, first of all, that he has elevated blood pressure. But I think that therefore, neither hypertensive emergency or hypertensive urgency really would apply in this particular case, um, and even if you use the, the cutoff of 180 or 102. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that I struggled with as an intern, and now even when I'm super busy and maybe just don't have a time to kind of slow down and think about it, is a lot of times someone's elevated blood pressure is actually coming from something else, some other factor. So how do you sort of think through that and like, try to make sure that you're addressing what, what those potential things could be. Like, how do you, what's your process yeah. and like, what, what are the things you think about? Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, this is where history really takes, comes into place. So you're just trying to get a sense of what has happened in their own lives. Once again, do they have this diagnosis of hypertension? Were they on the medications? Have they been able to take their medications? Have they been not able to take medications for, you know, whatever reason? So that's a fairly typical scenario when patients have a history of hypertension and do not take, or, or haven't been able to take their blood pressure medicines. But then there are other conditions that raise blood pressure. Recalling that blood pressure is oftentimes linked to the sympathetic nervous system. So anytime that is in overdrive, 
uh, such as withdrawal syndromes from medications, from substance, from potentially alcohol use, pain, symptoms like symptoms that they're experiencing, pain, anxiety, nausea, um, really almost any symptom. Actually, one of the things that we see not infrequently in a population is urinary obstruction, which is a common presenting complaint. And so that can cause elevated blood pressures. So people, we have a patient with end-stage renal disease that I see, and they oftentimes will have elevated blood pressures. And they may be related to whether or not they've had their dialysis recently or not. And so, you know, there's so many different factors that can come into play that can lead to elevated blood pressure. And once again, I mentioned this alternate reality. Anyone who's been in the ER waiting for seven hours to be seen, probably by the time you see them, is going to have elevated blood pressure. And so it is something just extraordinarily common. I was just thinking about this. I, you know, for whatever you want to say about the, the ACC high blood pressure guideline, I think everyone agrees that their emphasis on the correct measurement of blood pressure is great. And so the patient is supposed to be seated quietly for five minutes and there's no talking and they're sitting with their back supported, and their feet flat on the floor and they have not eaten and, and, and on and on and on. And I'm just thinking about my experience in the inpatient side of things when I've seen blood pressures being taken and literally none of those things apply. And I can't help <laughs> but wonder what the role of just even measurement technique above and beyond some of the other things that I'm sure we're going to talk about might be contributing towards pressures that seem high in the hospital that might just be a matter of technical measurement stuff. Yeah. And so, I mean, you can imagine that's even, it basically it's impossible in the hospital. That, that, was, that, that reality does not exist in the hospital to do any of those things and to, to measure it. Um, you know, we're lucky when they use the right cuff size um, in the hospital. I mean, that's what we're, I mean, just literally like two weeks ago, um, it was a patient's room that had a uh, kind of rapid response team and, you know, they had one cuff on the ankle and one cuff oh. on the wrist. And, and the reason was because they were trying, they had a cuff on the arm and it, it expanded to the point, you know, kind of blew off and, you know, like the parachuting cuff that happens. <laughs> and so that is uh, something that happens not, not uncommonly. So yeah, it's very difficult. And then just before we go on to the rest of the case, like you said, this patient right now doesn't have like a prior diagnosis of hypertension, but if he did and had those reasons, would your definition or the things that you would consider be any different? Well, he, if he had a carried, if he had hypertension, then you know he would still have essential hypertension. Essential hypertension is the most common form. You know, it's idiopathic, we think, versus a secondary cause. We probably don't know enough about him to know which is which at the moment, which is often the case. Once again, in an inpatient setting, or just meeting patients for the first time, I think that the his definition wouldn't change. He has elevated blood pressure. I would not classify him as hypertensive urgency or an emergency based on what we know about him so far. So that part wouldn't change. Um, and if anything else, I'd really be thinking about if he's on blood pressure medicines, a little bit more about what is he taking, how has he been taking it, and and then with his alcohol use disorder, once again, last drink, and if he's had symptoms before. And like any patient that, as I mentioned, when we think about enduring and damage, you would be asking questions to get a sense of, is this blood pressure affecting him, or are there other things? Cool. This episode is brought to you by 10,000. Curbsiders, you remember 10,000. They are a training, fitness, and athletic apparel brand that just makes this beautiful, well-made, high-quality, and minimalist approach to their design compared to when you go to like a Nike store and they have hundreds of different options. Well, 10,000 doesn't need that or want that because they just make a couple products that work really great and look really great. Their stuff is lightweight and comfortable. They have silver ion for odor protection, no bounce pockets, and the fabric is lightweight and breathable. I've been wearing the interval short when I go to the gym or go on runs, 
and the session short, especially for long runs, which is super lightweight and perfect for running. They also sent me a lightweight shirt that is probably one of the most comfortable pieces of clothing I have ever owned. It feels like you're almost not wearing a shirt at all. So right now, 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code CURB to receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10,000.cc and enter code CURB to get 15% off your purchase. 10,000.cc and enter code CURB. So moving on with the case, so you thought a lot about it, like sitting and pre-rounding. And so now you go and see him and he looks calm. He's feeling well. He doesn't have any signs or symptoms of withdrawal and doesn't complain of any pain. And your exam is unremarkable. You reviewed all of his labs, which are all within normal limits, including his downtrending white blood cell count and his creatinine of 0.9, which is stable from his baseline. And now the nurse is calling you to notify you of his morning blood pressure, which is now 171 over 105. And the nurse is calling you per the admission order set parameters, which is contact over like 160, let's say. So what are you doing with all of that information now? Yeah, the parameters, you know, the hospitalist, you know, dream slash nightmare. So this is like such a common scenario that anyone in inpatient medicine experiences. And I have to say, I really enjoy it because it shows in some ways, how we've been programmed to think about blood pressure. And then something that I like you know, to think about and I tell my learners is, we know that blood pressure is serious. And then the, the, everyone, everyone knows that blood pressure is serious. In fact, I've heard recently talking about blood pressure as a silent killer. That's in our minds. That's in our patients' minds. That's in our nurses' minds. That's in our providers' minds. And you know, when we think about blood pressure, we know that you know, blood, people who have blood pressures even over 20, over 10, that they are double risk of having coronary disease and stroke, and even reducing their blood pressure by five millimeters of mercury has like you know reductions, you know bad outcomes over the course of four years. There was a recent lesson about that. So we have that in our mind that blood pressure is bad, and therefore when blood pressure is over a certain amount, number, we need to do something about it. And so I tell them, you know, once again, what is our goal? What are we hoping to do with blood pressure in the ambulatory setting with the blood pressure? We want people to get better blood pressure over the course of time so that they have reduced bad outcomes, heart disease and stroke. The challenge that we have in the hospital setting is one, there are really no guidelines to help guide us on how what the target blood pressure is. We don't have a sprint trial. We don't have a trial that you know, kind of tells us you know, what blood pressure we should, we should go for for different populations that are available for the outpatient setting, whether it be renal disease or heart failure or so forth. We don't have that. And so a lot of it is what, they, what people have seen, what people have done, what people have been taught to do. And I think that explains why when you get called, you know, you get called not only just to be, let you know, but usually for some action. And I think this is an important time to think that sometimes no action is the appropriate action. So that is kind of how I think about it. Once again, we go back to thinking about his symptoms. What is, you mentioned he's feeling well and looking well. And I don't want to discount how important hypertensive emergency is because it really is not good. Mortality is higher, morbidity is higher. Um, we know it's not a great thing. Even hypertensive, if you want to call it, if, if you want to use the phrase hypertensive urgency, let's just use the word uncontrolled hypertension. We know uncontrolled hypertension is a bad prognostic factor for our patients, which means they really hopefully can work on a path of getting better. The question is, how much do we need to do at time zero when we're seeing them in the few days of hospitalization 
because most of the benefits happen over months to years rather than to hours, days, and weeks. Yeah, that's a good point of like sort of like the long term goal to get pressure over a long longer period of time. But what are some? We know what the the positives are long term, but in the short term, what are some of the downsides if you decided? intern Moni did many a time to give, you know, some IV medication to drop the pressure or decrease the pressure so that the pages would just stop. What, what's a downside to that? Yeah. So it's a great question. I think one of the challenges that is that so many people have been giving medicines like this for um, as needed blood pressures and haven't necessarily had a incident that will stick to them. Because I think if someone has a bad outcome, they think about that like, oh yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. Many of us, and I will just say, get away with a practice pattern that has led to treating blood pressures. And then, you know, you've also, I'm sure, heard the phrase, treating a number, not the person. And it's one of the things that, once again, I would ask all of us, and when the people were thinking about their blood pressure is, what are we hoping to do? What, are, what is our goal for treating their blood pressure? I mentioned that at the goal for an ambulatory and outpatient setting is for their general health. We know it reduces cardiovascular outcomes. It may not be, and it probably isn't the same thing for the hospital in the hospital setting. And the question is, what could be the consequences of it? Let's say we get away with it, but what could happen? Well, we know when people's blood pressures, when you get blood pressure medicine, medicine, their blood pressure will go down. And I think many of us have a sense that we don't want their blood pressure to go down too quickly. Some of that, I think, comes from how we think about some really serious types of conditions, stroke, dissection, and so forth, where we don't want the blood pressure to go down too quickly. So we have that in our mind. I think many people have 20% or 25% over 6 to 24 hours. That's how people, I think many people have that in their mind. So they think about that. And so the blood pressure might go down more than that. And so they might get symptomatic on the other end. If you're used to having a blood pressure that's elevated and all of a sudden your blood pressure goes down too low, they might get symptomatic, dizzy, lightheaded, may not feel well. So that's something that you will experience. They won't be able to tell you that they feel. What if you do that, and then they try to you know, go up to use the bathroom, and then they get dizzy and they fall. That's something that can happen. It does happen in the hospital setting. You know, we know falls are something that we try to avoid. Um, so those are some of the downsides that, that, that happen. Plus, you know, depending on what medicine you give them, there might be especially some of the common medicines. There can be kind of reflex tachycardia that happens or side effects from the medicines themselves that are untoward that we you know, don't want to have for our patients. Noble. I, I wanted to bring up, and I, I'm not sure, I, I didn't get a chance to ask you ahead of time about this, but there was a couple articles in the past few years actually talking about harm. Now, these weren't randomized trials. There was a cohort study and there was a couple observational studies that that looked at this and actually were able to show a little bit harm. Did you want to talk about those? I can sure. I can mention some of them briefly, but if, yeah, if you have them- a- there was a Rostogi article that was done in Gem Internal Medicine this uh, past December 2020, which was a really large cohort study in the Cleveland area, looked at 10 hospitals, looking at patients with blood pressure. And there really was a great, it was a great study because, you know, we think about blood pressure going down as kind of a bad thing and the side effect. But as I mentioned, that is kind of what we want to happen. And we don't necessarily know if that's a, a bad thing. So they actually, they looked at different outcomes. They looked at Things such as acute kidney injury and myocardial infarction and stroke, which are some, I would say, patient-centered outcomes that, that we could kind of latch on to to see what happens when we give patients blood pressure medicines in the hospital. And they gave, they looked at, there ended up being like 5,900 patients that they looked at and three quarters of them got oral kind of antihypertensives and even and a quarter got IV antihypertensives. And they looked at what happened to them. And long story short, and kind of maybe surprising and maybe practice changing, I, I don't think it's 
you know, we have any guidelines, I said, but I'm hoping that eventually we will get some more movement toward this. They found that there was actually increased risk of acute kidney injury, myocardial infarctions, and the composite of stroke. But as it turns out, it wasn't so much stroke. It was really more the kidneys and the uh, MI, which I say that because another common phrase is, we want to treat your blood pressure because we don't want you to stroke out. We don't want to have a stroke in the hospital. It's something that is said all the time. It's something that I've heard a lot. This study showed that really the one the, the incidence of stroke was very low, so low that they, they couldn't even see a difference. So it's something that really happens as much as we think it might happen. Um, and then with the with those bad outcomes, they had a forty two percent increase in their kidney injury, almost double the risk of MI, and that was you know in the hospital stay. And then we might get to this, but it really they looked at the when they transitioned outside the hospital as well. And so after they left the hospital those who got treated for their blood pressure, once again, had bad outcomes, whether it be the same thing versus readmissions. And as it turns out, and it's not really surprising, the studies show that our sphere of influence as a hospitalist, that when you check their blood pressure a year from now, it hasn't really changed. So because there's, as you know, the moment we discharge them and when they're in the ambulatory care world, there's so much about them that we, have, that we don't have much control over that we can't in- impact. And as it turns out, it's really the transitions to their outpatient doctors, their primaries and their cardiologists and nephrologists to help kind of continue their path of health. And I think a lot of our, uh, what I would like try to do is really um, use our influence as, as the providers to talk to them about lifestyle and importance of blood pressure and have them understand why it's so important for them to follow up. Um, and most recommendations will say that they need to be followed up closely you know, depending on you know, how their blood pressure is. So the the articles there, there was the one by Rostogi that was that was like December 2020. And then this Anderson at Al had, a, this was an article in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2019, looking at like 30-day readmission and serious adverse events, which were increased. And then Anderson had also looked back in the in the past, he had been reporting on like the first study they did was like, how common is it for blood pressure meds to be escalated? And it, it was common. And so the other stuff that I've seen in the literature recently is like talking about changing the call parameters. And that was that was an intervention that was shown in a couple of different trials, which you can put in the show notes to like decrease the amount of people that were getting these IV or oral antihypertensive medications. So it's super interesting stuff. And I mean, I, Noble, I'd love to hear your take on it. My take has been, I have like a much higher threshold to do anything in the hospital especially if the person had control, like they weren't hypertensive outside the hospital. And I have that history from the chart or the primary care that no, their blood pressure was fine. And now they're in the hospital, it's a little high. So, you know, I see a lot of those patients in follow-up as a primary care and they've had meds added that I'm then stopping at that first visit because, you know, they, they were in an unusual setting and that's why their blood pressure was high. Absolutely. I think that, um, I would say I've changed my practice really uh, as well. Uh, I mean, I think that I, like Moni, whether I was intern or probably, you know, probably three or four years ago, I probably would be treating people with, um, with antihypertensives on a regular basis. Once again, I mentioned being programmed, and these are well-intentioned. We want to do the right thing for the patient. We know blood pressure is bad. And I think that many times in you know um, hospital settings and you know, with, with a patient population where you're worried that they're not going to get the transition of care and they may not be able to follow up and let's start some medicines, you know, especially we've had difficulties these days for patients to be able to see their outpatient provider in a timely manner as much as, you know, whether it be two weeks or four weeks. That's been challenging. We hear that from our patients. 
And so we really want to kind of give them a, heads up, a, a start to that. So I think it comes from a, a good place, um, but we're getting some more data that that is unfortunately not the right thing to do. You know, I mentioned that there isn't a lot of guidelines for our, for inpatient management, but there is guidelines what they tell ambulatory physicians to when the patients come in with an elevated blood pressure for to not send them to the ER and to, and to not necessarily escalate. And so I tell my learners and I think of myself as like if I happen to be in the hospital, if I happen to see this patient in a clinic setting, if I can go back way in time when I saw people in clinic, and what would I do? And most of the time, I would imagine most people would say, no, I wouldn't call my hospitalist for direct admission, which we used to get a lot for, for blood pressure. And, and I think that message has really come through because it has not been happening a lot. They're not sending going down to the ER, ER as much. And, and I think the ER is doing an amazing job really recently of, of having that same kind of philosophy of recognizing there's so many factors that can lead to blood pressure and looking at their symptoms and then you know, having them go back to their outpatient provider. To summarize, you know, when we have a patient that comes in with high blood pressure, you want to make sure that they don't already have a diagnosis and aren't missing some home meds. Then you want to think through other causes that could be leading to high blood pressure, such as pain, anxiety, withdrawal, things like that. And then the other piece is if, you know, a patient continues to have high blood pressure and they were, one, if they had high blood pressure and were on meds at home, really don't want to intensify medications on discharge because it's been shown to be harmful. And then if they weren't really on blood pressure medicines before they came in and they didn't have that diagnosis, be real mindful of whether or not you're going to send them out. Because again, the outcomes just haven't been um, shown to be beneficial and in some instances been harmful. Noble, any modifications? Are we? Does that all sound pretty much on point? Yeah, it's, that sounds exactly right. Uh, it reminds me of a, you know, blood pressure has all sorts of patients who come in and um, I recall, you know, you know, as it turns out, Bugs Bunny came to my office, came to the hospital one day, and he had really high blood pressure. And, you know, I was having a real time talking to him about it. I don't know what was going on. He was maybe he wasn't have a bad day, but I kept telling him his blood pressure, his blood pressure. And he goes, but he kept asking me, what's up, doc? And I was like, it's your blood pressure. And, and <laughs> I did not see that one coming. <laughs> and, I mean, I had a hard time. I mean, so I decided, I decided to do a manual cuff. We talked about automated cuffs, but I tried to do a manual blood pressure cuff, but I, Kept getting, I couldn't really do a good one because I kept getting distracted because I kept hearing his carrot cough. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was very deflating. Um, but I figured, you know, this could be my first and last time on a podcast. So I'm gonna, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. <laughs> How did you keep bringing the heat like that? I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, you know, uh, to get back to one serious point, we should mention that these were non-cardiac admissions that they were looking at in the Rostogi study and the other, right? You know, if someone's there with a cardiac diagnosis, that's that's different. We're talking about patients like ours that was here with a pneumonia or something else, and the blood pressure is incidental to the admission. Absolutely. Thank you. And I also would mention that there are some conditions that come up where we do have some guidelines for dealing with their blood pressure. You know, stroke has some guidelines related to how we think about their blood pressure, oftentimes with permissive hypertension, letting their blood pressure rise high. People come in with really severe conditions, aortic dissection or intracranial hemorrhage. You know, those, those patients really need to have their blood pressure down lower. Oftentimes they would be done in an, in, you know, an ICU type of setting. But so we do have some guidelines for that. And that is really different from what honestly is what the, most of the times we get called about, which are patients who happen to have high blood pressure and they're in the hospital for something different. Great. So I think we're going to move on to the next case. Miss Leslie Flash is a 66-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, who presents to the ER with shortness of breath and chest pain, which started suddenly at 4 a.m. 
She denies any radiation, nausea, vomiting, headaches, dizziness, or cough. She's been traveling, and she left all her medications at home. On exam, her temperature was 37.1, heart rate 90, blood pressure was 221 over 118, respirations 20, and an oxygen saturation of 88% on room air. The nurse in the ED places her on oxygen to two liters, and her saturations improved to 92%. She is in mild respiratory distress, but otherwise alert and oriented times three. Neuro exam is within normal limits. Cardiac exam is also within normal limits with a normal S1, S2, and no murmurs, uh, no lower extremity edema, pulmonary exam with bibasilar rails, and then labs are remarkable for a creatinine of 1.9 and a troponin of 0.15. EKG with a normal sinus rhythm, some LVH, but no ST segment changes, and the chest X-ray shows an increase, a bilateral increase in interstitial markings. So Noble, how would you classify this patient's hypertension and why? Yeah, so Ms. Flash, in this case, is coming in with concerns that her blood pressure is causing problems. And so, you know, definitely her blood pressure is elevated, 220 over 118. So that's definitely above our threshold of 180 over 120. And when we think about symptoms of end organ damage, some of the common things we think about are, we'll talk about things such as cardiac, which tends to, can be presented as angina, cucurinia syndromes, pulmonary edema, in this case, potentially what we call flash edema, flash pulmonary edema. Um, they can present with uh, encephalopathy or CNS symptoms, uh, visual complaints. So in this case, with her having elevated blood pressure and what looks to be pulmonary edema and her troponin elevated, I think I'd be concerned enough about her to deem her as hypertensive emergency, which of course leads us to a different way of thinking about her. And so that's how I would classify because of that. She has elevated blood pressure. She has what looks to be acute pulmonary edema, which is probably related to her blood pressure. And so I would call her that uh, as hypertensive emergency. Okay, great. So now thinking about it, like you just got called from, you know, the emergency room about this patient, they just provided you with this excellent sign out. And you're trying to think about kind of where is she going to be best served in the hospital? I think this comes up and obviously is variable across different institutions and everything. But kind of how do you think about potentially triaging her care across the different Places. Yeah, I like to think that anyone who has hypertensive emergency should be in a monitored setting. So whether that be in an intensive care unit or a step down, someone where they can have close monitoring, which oftentimes means not only doesn't necessarily mean the equipment, but oftentimes it means nursing, how much care they're going to get from a nursing standpoint. And therefore, I would not feel this patient is appropriate for a, a general floor patient, even on telemetry or on a medical floor or cardiac floor because of that. So I would suggest this person should be in the intensive care unit or step down somewhere where they have a closer nursing ratio so they can monitor them closely. It's because the treatments oftentimes or medications are infusions of, of antihypertensives that require titration and close monitoring. And this is where you have an opportunity to think about how slow or how quickly their blood pressure is going down. Before we go on to talk about the treatment, Noble, I wanted to ask there are some vague symptoms that are attributed to hypertension and then trying to figure out like, is a headache end organ damage? Can you talk a little bit about that? That is one of the most challenging things I think we think about. And I really, I'm going to mention, I think we've come to think that hypertension emergency is an emergency. So it's really something we don't want to miss because it requires, it leads to a different pathway of action and potentially triaging, but it's not as simple as saying someone has end organ damage. It's because at the bedside, how do we know that someone's having end organ damage? 
when they're having this elevated blood pressure. Sometimes it's not so obvious. When you look at some of these studies, one of the studies that looked at the um, acute treatment of hypertension, we don't do a good job of looking at eyes. You know, we've lost our fundoscopic skills, and who cares if ophthalmoscope with them? So we don't have that. Um, they may have kidney problems, but at the bedside, you can't tell that they're having you know, hypertension kidney crisis. So we're kind of left with kind of mental status and or neurodeficits, the thing about stroke um, or hypertensive kind of encephalopathy if they're altered. Uh, then we have, you know, potentially angina, although that also can look and be in different ways. And then you have the shortness of breath, uh, which is, you know, common ways that they present. This is in contrast to symptoms like headache, dizziness, maybe nosebleeds, which oftentimes are not hypertensive emergencies, but can present with elevated blood pressures. And oftentimes, I don't think of headache really as an incident, a sign of end organ damage. I would think of about encephalopathy, changes in, in behavior as being the one from a CNS standpoint that would make me worried about her blood pressure you know, leading to uh, end organ damage. So we kind of alluded to this, I think, a little bit during the last case, but I think it's a little bit more applicable here. So I'm hoping we can just kind of reiterate some of it. But what are some of the situations um, in which blood pressure goals may be different, like specific diagnoses that you're going to be a little bit more concerned about how you're going to treat them? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these diagnoses, hopefully we'll have other people helping us besides ourselves. Um, but things such as, you know, intracranial hemorrhage, um, aortic dissection, or sometimes even stroke, uh, oftentimes are managed by consultants, um, not only the general internist or hospitalist. But those are, once again, emergencies that require, one, closer monitoring in an ICU setting. But we do have some targets to go through. I mean, I think that if you're by yourself and you have no no one to support you, I think that, one, when you're in the intensive care unit, for aortic dissection, usually think about 120 systolic as being a, a target that you want to get to, um, intracerebral hemorrhage, similarly, kind of in the 140 range. Um, so you, you have some targets that you want to get to, to get to get them to a place where they won't be having as many symptoms related to that. Stroke, as I mentioned, is a little bit kind of opposite problem where, you know, it's you actually let them blood pressure kind of stay elevated for a period of time. There's great evidence for that. I don't know how great that is, but we, we've kind of been doing that a lot. And so especially when and there's differences whether or not someone is going to get thrombolytics or not in terms of what your blood pressure uh, targets are. But those are at least three circumstances where you would really be paying attention to their blood pressures and, uh, and really probably thinking about uh, intravenous medications to get them to a blood pressure target, especially for dissection and intracerebral hemorrhage. Which medications would you choose for this patient? Yeah. So, you know, I think the thing about medications, once again, when you think about titratable medications, I'll ask, I mean, the issue is how quickly they act and what is the effect of their action. And so we've talked a little bit about IV kind of vasodilators such as hydralazine as being a medicine that's oftentimes used. And just to be explicit, one of the problems with that is when we look at hydralazine, the, the range of effect of medication when you give it is so variable between patients that it's, not, it's just unreliable in terms of what's going to happen. And we don't want necessarily our blood pressure to go down too quickly, too fast, and which is what which happens. In fact, if I may, I'll tell a story of, of a patient really recently that I saw at CASHLAC, which had a very similar presentation of really a pulmonary edema with an elevated blood pressure. And I think kind of ironically, the, the provider in the emergency department said, well, are you just treating a, a number or are you treating the patient? And uh, I was like, whoa, that's the pendulum swung the one way. And uh, <laughs> the um, uh, and so had what we call flexible adrenal 
my my suspicion or my inclination was this was a happiness of emergency because of the situation. But so and I recommend an intensive care unit. But I, as I imagine many places are, it takes hours upon end to get into the ICU because of of bad situations. And so the patient did get IV hydralazine actually three times. And I just I say this example to say the first time the the patient got it, the blood pressure went down by fifty points. The second time they got it, it went down by zero points. And so this is unpredictable. And so I, that's a, I'm just trying to reinforce the fact that I really feel strongly that things like IV hydralazine are things that should be out of our practice because it's, it's just unreliable. So our patient, Ms. Leslie Flash, I would put in the intensive care unit and put her on a, an IV medication. Now, you may say that you know she has potentially pulmonary edema, so you might want to do like a nitroside or a nipride or a nitroglycerin to further you know, dilation. IV nicarbine is really, I think, a favorite of many of ours in the intensive care unit for blood pressure control. It's very titratable. Uh, people tolerate it very well. Um, either one of those medicines would be my kind of go-to. Um, you know, imagine that she would be getting some furosemide, you know, for her flash pulmonary edema, which of course will also potentially affect her blood pressure. And so another reason to, I think, to have a titratable medication in the tissue is because you're going to give her a furosemide, that's going to lower her blood pressure. Just probably with time, the, her blood pressure will go down. And so if you give a, a medication where you have an, an effect that you can't predict, that might lead to problems. And so I would say a, a high nitroprusside. I didn't mention this before, but I, I like to mention this once again. I know I'm pushing, beating a dead horse, but this idea of blood pressure in the hospital, another study which I really love is looking at rest. And is this a Korean study where they had about 60 people in each arm rest versus giving the medicines. And the people who would just rest, they didn't get any medicines. They just like were just quiet for two hours, had the same level of like decreased blood pressure as those who got medicines and, you know, had no worse outcomes. And so, you know, sometimes patients and then the body heal, heal itself it, it sometimes is um, the better part of valor. But for Ms. Flash, she needs medications. She is someone who needs to be treated, I think, aggressively. And I would put in the intensive care unit and give her probably nicardipine would be the one I would choose, but, or you can do some, or nitroprusside. Great. So she's been on nicardipine. She's met the goals that she set. When would you start considering a transition to an oral regimen? And then what are some special considerations when you do choose that regimen for this patient? Yeah, we're lucky for Ms. Flash because it sounds like she has medications that she takes, but she just didn't have those medicines. So we can, we're starting with a starting point that we know presumably what medications that she had been on. And so I would probably start with those. And you know, I think when we work in an any patient setting, we generally speaking do not start all people medicines back at the same time. That is just what we do. It's just kind of our practice patterns because we don't know how their blood pressure is going to react and we get nervous about that. So we tend to generally people are starting things in a stepwise manner. And I think that's fair as long as, you know, once again, if they're medicines that they're on at home and once again, things might've changed, her labs might've changed that might've made one medication you know, unable to be used. So, but I would look at her own medications and those would be the ones, I, those would be the ones I would start with. And then I would probably start the ones, you know, one, how many there are, but probably start them, um, maybe not all of them, but at least from that group and then, you know, add back. We, we've talked a little bit about the study about escalation. I wouldn't call that escalation. These are medicines that she takes. And so these are the medicines I would give her. Yeah. I think one of the things that I did frequently as an intern would be to just start everything right away. And one of the things we forget is sometimes, you know, for whatever reason, uh, patient's adherence may not be the best. And so they may take a couple of them. They may not take all of them. And I think every intern learns this lesson of starting all of them back and then 
the pressure is kind of bottoming at, bottoming out and then seeing some of the repercussions of that. So I think that's a really good point to make. Yeah. So they, you know, it's not, yeah, the blood pressure. And then we talked about maybe the, and things that we don't even know that are, that are happening, you know, from a kind of minute to minute, you know, how is it affecting their kidneys? How is it affecting their other vasculature to have these fluctuations in blood pressure? We're getting some data that potentially there are some bad things that happen when we do that. Noble, I wanted to bring up this point. We often talk about restarting long-acting medications, or if for whatever reason, we're really sure this person has uncontrolled hypertension as an outpatient, and we decide we wanted to go up on some of their long-acting medications, sometimes that takes a while to start working. So do you ever find any role for those shorter-acting medications in the hospital for blood pressure? You know, I'll say that in generally speaking, it's not something that I do often. Now, short-acting medications that are happen to be blood pressure medicines may be things for like rate control and using it for their, for their heart rate. And sometimes if you really are worried about whether or not their kidneys will manage a, um, an ACE inhibitor, you might want to use some shorter-acting ACE inhibitors. But for blood pressure control, um, I usually use the general normal medications that we use for blood pressure in the hospital, you know, for patients that are usually long-acting. Um, and that's one of the challenges you mentioned that when they go to, we start a medication and then they get out of the hospital and they go to their doctor, they'll tell the doctors, I'm having this side effect or their blood pressure is lower. And their outpatient provider who knows them much better will say, nope, and then make some changes. And part of that is the reason that we probably are not seeing as much benefit as we think we are seeing when people leave the hospital with escalating doses. Um, I think on this, I guess, kind of on the same line then. So it's not impossible that um, Our Lady Miss Flash also showed up with no prior history of hypertension, not on any meds, but still kind of had the same presentation and kind of trying to, how would you think about like balancing that line of not wanting to be too aggressive, intensifying medications, but wanting to, arguably, she probably needs to be on something would be the argument we often make. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is where I think we can kind of call upon our really our you know vestigial kind of like outpatient skills that we had with counseling patients and kind of doing really some shared decision making about with the patients about blood pressure and blood pressure control, thinking about you know lifestyles and, and activity and diet and education about their blood pressure. But I do think that most people would feel uncomfortable not putting them on any blood pressure medications. Now we might get some diagnoses that help us. See you know, might have what sounds like she's coming with pulmonary edema. Maybe she does have an element of heart failure that we are diagnosing. And therefore, now she's in a kind of a cardiac condition. And some of the data we've talked about doesn't necessarily apply in this case. But I would say that I would start slow and and low and thinking about, you know, what medicines you want to start and then really hoping if they can transition in a expeditious way in the outpatient setting, that would really be the safest thing to do is to start medication. She, someone, if she was on no medications, you do not have that kind of to kind of go off on, is to think about what diagnosis do we have that potentially we have some uh, guidelines to help us with. And then if not, we can still use, you know, GNC or ACC for for starting, um, you know, blood pressure medications um, in the hospital with the, with the caveat that, you know, we need to talk to them about when, if they, would they need lab monitoring afterwards? Would they need you know, titration, which they probably will in the outpatient setting and how they get them there. And I really do appreciate that can be a real challenge for a lot of our patients. And, I, and once again, I you know, feel that And many of our patients, you know, we're doing this, we're doing med to beds, we're giving their medicines when they leave the hospital, knowing that it's hard for them to get to the pharmacy and hard for them necessarily to see their doctor. And we want to help them out because we want them to be adherent. So once again, we're coming from a good place, you know, even talking about a blood pressure cuff for home, potentially to help them create journals, 
Um, the things that I think we take, talk to all our patients who have high blood pressure about the same kind of lifestyle changes and, and kind of just monitoring and, and kind of thinking about it would be how I would start and um, talking to them that this is not, um, you know, blood pressure control is not a sprint. It's a marathon. So I think the kind of the last thing that we kind of wanted to touch base on, um, and it's sort of relevant to her too, because it inevitably kind of comes up is in the situation where you have someone who may have this prior diagnosis of um, hypertension or may not kind of the question of when in the inpatient setting would you consider working up um, any of the causes for um, secondary hypertension? Yeah. So we talked about essential hypertension as being idiopathic, kind of in contrast to secondary hypertension or resistant hypertension when patients come in on multiple medications. And sometimes we know that before they come in, but sometimes we don't know that. Um, And once again, it's hard for us to predict if she would actually meet that criteria of needing you know, multiple medications to control her blood pressure. And so that's probably impacts how I think about these patients in terms of whether or not they need secondary hypertension. In general, the answer would be they don't, should get, should, should not get secondary hypertension workups in the hospital. That being said, I think when you're talking to the patient, thinking about the reason someone might have elevated blood pressure, we talked about whether they're in pain or nausea or other things. If they have undiagnosed sleep apnea or are at risk for it, that's very common that we see. If they have lab abnormalities that might make you think of, you know, potentially some a diagnosis that we're not diagnosing as often as like hyperaldo, uh, hyperaldosteronism, which you know potentially is affecting more patients than we think. You know, once again, we think about lab abnormalities, which I think everyone who takes patient, care of patients in the hospital knows that like everyone in the hospital is hypokalemic, and so it's hard to like, you know, attribute that with their blood pressure. But those are things about it. whether could they have do they have renal vascular disease? But when we think about when sometimes when we think about secondary hypertension, we're thinking about like renal artery stenosis and um, coarctation and some other things like that, which generally or endocrine disorders, which when they have no other symptoms that go along with the endocrine disorder, then that leads us doing testing that may lead to false positives and other things like that. So for the most part, you know, secondary hypertension workups are things that I don't do in the hospital for my patients. Um, but I do like to think about what might be leading to their blood pressure being elevated that I haven't thought about for them to think about and maybe talk to their doctors about and that might require further testing. I feel like this is the type of thing that often doesn't make it into the discharge summary or even into like a warm handoff. Like if someone has nocturnal hypoxia and you're like, huh, I wonder if there's not some component of sleep apnea or they were sort of unexpectedly hypokalemic. And, you know, I, I don't think a lot of outpatient doctors are going through daily labs um, and post-discharge follow-up. It's, it feels like this would be a real opportunity to sort of facilitate that kind of communication um, and either call the primary care doctor or even just make sure we're explicit in the discharge summaries. Like here are potential causes that probably need worked up as an outpatient. But yeah, it sounds like not a whole lot of this can even really be effectively worked up on the inpatient side of things anyway. Yeah, it's a great great thought about the warm handoff. And I think the challenge is that many of these patients are coming to the hospital for reasons that are not related to their blood pressure. So we're talking to them about, you know, their whatever illness that brought them in, you know, the pneumonia or the cellulitis. And so hypertension and their elevated blood pressure kind of becomes problem three, list three or four. And so we don't spend as much time talking about what happened to them in the hospital um, and thinking kind of forward about what guidance we might talk to the, the outpatient providers with. So that's, that's a great thought. I think it's so important to mention those kind of things in the discharge summary and, and really talk to the patient about it so they can speak to their doctors about it, saying, hey, my doctor in the hospital told me about this. Um, you know, What do you think? So I think we are ready for some take-home points. This has been great. We've covered a ton of ground, but at some point we have to let you get home. So please uh, give the audience like maybe two or three take-home points uh, that you really want them to remember from tonight's conversation. 
Yeah. Um, thank you. And I think when I think about blood pressure, it's something such a common thing that these people see all the time to recognize that there are times to act and there are times not to act. And for the most part, um, when we are called for elevated blood pressure, it is a time for reflection and not action. And so recognizing the hypertensive emergency, thinking about the symptoms and signs of end organ damage, does is someone who requires, I would say, close monitoring for titratable medications. But those who, have, who are asymptomatic of elevated blood pressures, think about why they're having elevated blood pressures um, and really speak to the patient and the nursing staff and other people who might be giving you pressure to give them uh, medications and recognizing that you know, in even well-intentioned purposes, there is more and more evidence that providing patients with blood pressure medication in the hospital for asymptomatic reasons and then escalating their doses might have um, adverse effects, both in the short term as well as in the long term. Fantastic. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great, good energy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. I love to see how freaked out everyone is the first time we ask them to say yummy, Paul, and in the outro. No, and you know what? That's the appropriate response, though. Like, there was way too much enthusiasm early on. They're right, and we were wrong. I guess that just means we're recording with some sane people for once. Um, Anyway, we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or you can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And a special thanks to our producers for this episode, Meredith Trubit and Moni Amin. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder that you can claim CME credit for this and most of our episodes through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And so, everybody, until next time, after all of that, I have been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And uh, I've been Moni, not Money Amin. <laughs> and I'm Meredith Elizabeth Trubit. <laughs> great, strong work, both of you. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you are doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.